0: Hebrews 13, verses 1 to 6. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. Go ahead and keep your Bibles open to Hebrews chapter thirteen as we come to the next in our series in the book of Hebrews. It may not seem perhaps the most obvious passage to be speaking on at Christmas time. Clearly, we've got you know the, the, this is Christmas and we've got the uh, the trees up and everything else. But and it but it really is. It's not quite like those who say that Die Hard is their favorite Christmas movie. Uh, the, the, you'll see that there is resonance and relevance. But, of course, we're a church that believes in preaching the Bible, so we're, we're finishing our series in the book of Hebrews. There's this one today and one next week, and then there'll be two uh, special Christmas messages after that, of course. Well, the sermon uh, this morning is all about love, and that's because this passage is all about love. Uh, the challenge is that love is far easier to talk about than to do, and even to talk about it's not that easy. We think of uh, love as something that is sentimental, obvious, but actually, it's it, it's it, it's certainly hard to put into practice, and it's it, it's. Well, as D.A. Carson put it in his little book on this, this theme, the difficult doctrine of love. It's, it's difficult to get right, and it's certainly difficult to put into practice, which is why in uh, God's wisdom and in these inspired words of God in the book of Hebrews, the author is not simply telling us to love, which... W- could just be a guilt trip because we know we should love and yet we find it hard. The author is telling us how and why. He's given us both practicality and motivation to love. And we certainly need uh, this theme, don't we? Uh, we? We all need to be loved and I remember when I was uh, first going on the mission field, I got together with a missionary, a very experienced missionary, and asked uh, this man about his insights about cross-cultural ministry. Uh, Somewhat ironically, in God's providence, I've spent most of my life doing cross-cultural ministry. In fact, I'm still doing it right now. But I I asked him about his insight, because doing cross-cultural work, there are subtleties to it, there are complexities to it, there are ways you could do it right and do it Better and worse and all that. And that's certainly true. There are differences across cultures. But this very experienced missionary, when I asked him for his insights about cross-cultural ministry, he just said, look, there's all this complexity, but the fundamental truth is everyone, everywhere, needs to be loved. That's certainly true, isn't it? Billy Graham in his last uh, crusade, the last crusade that he did in person in New York City, he said that the greatest need of the world is for the transformation of human nature from hate to love. And it's not just in the religious bubble. You may be someone who's been invited to come to college church for the Christmas season or you're checking out Christian things over Christmas. It's, we, all, we all know we need love. Uh, Madonna, the, the great icon of pop, still going, I think, in some ways or other, Madonna once said when she was interviewed about why she was doing what she did. She said, if you want to get all psychological about it, the real truth is that the Reason for all this is that I wanted to be loved. Madonna. That's why she's done what she's done, because she wants to be loved. We all need to be loved. And yet, we live in a time. Uh, Dr. Stetzer from across the street called it in in a book he wrote a few years ago, he called it the age of outrage. We live in a time where hate is far more predominant than love. No one would call the last few years the summer of love, I think. And yet we need to be loved. And What is more, the church. (laughs) Uh, Sometimes when I look on social media feeds in the religious sort of world, the churchy world. And I look at what's being said. I'm tempted to put underneath the social media feed uh, the, the, the quotation from what the pagans described of the Christians in the ancient world when, they, when in the arena the, the Christians would leap ahead of one another to be eaten by the lion first to protect their brother and sister. And the pagans, we're told, said, as they observed this, how they love each other. I'm tempted to put that underneath those social media feeds. Do you think the pagans would say that about us today? Or even the more famous words of Jesus Himself By this shall all men know that we are his disciples, by the love that you have for one another. Would 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 the pagans say that about Jesus' disciples today? And yet, we need to love and be loved. And so, it's important that we listen to what is being said here, which is not only to love, which could be a guilt trip, but how and why. How and why to love. And in this passage, uh, the author of Hebrews has five elements to it, and they're all fairly profound, and we won't have time to get into them all in depth, but I'll, I'll go through them to give you a sense of what it is, and there are five of them. The first is in verse 1, and he says this, let brotherly love continue. Now that phrase, don't, don't get tripped up by the phrase brother as if he's only talking about male to male. The, the, the word behind that is Philadelphia, and it means family love, brotherly and sisterly love, and that's, that's, that's the why... And then the continue is the how. See, he's not here defining love. Uh, if you want to look uh, for a definition of love in the Bible, you need to go probably, the most famous one would be 1 Corinthians 13 where the Apostle Paul says, love is patient, love is kind, love does not keep a record of wrongs, love always perseveres, always protects. And, and he's reflecting that here. Love continues. That's the How? It continues. It doesn't stop. It doesn't give up. It keeps on going. And the why is the brotherly love, the family love. Listen, College Church, we are not merely an organization. Obviously, there are organizational elements to any group of people who get together, for sure. But we are not really an organization. What we are is a family. Brothers and sisters. If you're part of College Church, you're part of the family. People often get their mind wrong about this in church life. They they think of church as a friendship group. You can have friends in church. I hope you do. I certainly have friends in the church. I hope you do have friends in church. But there's there's only a certain number of people that you can know that kind of way by human capacity. Jesus himself only had 12 disciples and one of them was Judas. There's only about a dozen people or so that you can ever know really well. But we're part of a family. Brothers and sisters, that's why we do things like we have a congregational meeting tonight. It, it, it's not a business meeting. We're not there to make money. It's not business. It's a family meeting of the members of the church. Because we love each other. We do things together. And we encourage one another. And we look out for each other. And we are to continue. And not stop. So that's the first, family love. The second is in verse 2. He says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, and then here's the why, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now this is an unusual text and there have been all sorts of odd interpretations of it down through history, and I'll, I'll give you my View on it, and just uh, as we go into it. But the the love element here, and I mentioned that brotherly love is Philadelphia, but when it says hospitality to strangers, the, the Greek word for that is philosania. It's love again. So what he's saying, and philosania means love for the stranger. So hospitality here does not mean uh, cooking really good brownies for your friends. That's not what this is about. Hospitality here means loving the stranger, the outsider. It means loving the person who's not yet a Christian. Loving the person who is a Christian but not yet a part of the church. Philozania not xenophobia, which is fear or hate of the stranger. Christians are to be marked by philozenia, love for the stranger, love for the outsider. Why? Because the church is God's mission to the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. And the church bears that message. We ought to be people of philozenia. Love for the person we don't know for the outsider for the stranger for the non-christian that's what jesus did isn't it and he loves sinners well so uh, but how and 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 and, and and why? Why well, he says here, for, those, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares, which as I indicated is an unusual uh, explanation, rationale, motivation, um, instruction. And there have been many, many different odd interpretations down through history, some really unusual, some possible, and I don't have time to get through all of them. But let me just tell you what I think. Here's what I think. I think that the author of Hebrews is aware that his original audience, because they were almost certainly Jewish. Christians who've been tempted to go back to Judaism. Remember, the whole point of the book of Hebrews is this theme of better. It's a better future. It's a better church, as we saw last week, centered around the gospel. or seeking the city that is to come, the better future, as the better church. We'd better stick together. And so he knows that they are aware of the Old Testament Scriptures. They're Jewish Christians, schooled in the Old Testament stories. And when he makes this reference for some have entertained angels unawares what he's talking about of course is the well-known story for the Jewish people of Abraham and slightly less well-known but still very familiar Gideon who in their hospitality to strangers found they were having an angelic encounter which some theologians think, and I tend to agree with them, that that angelic encounter actually was a pre incarnate theophany of a pre incarnate meeting with Jesus himself. It was an angelic experience, a spiritual experience. And so, what the author of Hebrews is saying is you, Hebrew Christians, you want a spiritual encounter this Christmas? You want a divine encounter. He, he, the way to do that is not to listen to praise music on loop on from YouTube over and over and over again. The way to do that is not to listen to like your favorite Bible teacher on YouTube over and over and over again. You want a divine. You want an angelic encounter. Here's how you do it. You love the stranger. That's the. That's the fulcrum of divine encounter. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. You want a a spiritual encounter like no other this Christmas? Find a non Christian and love them enough to tell them about Jesus. Philosania, love for the outsider. The third one is in verse 3. Now, he doesn't specifically use the word love, but he's obviously thinking here about love, and it connects with the same idea of love. He says, verse 3, remember those, and we'll come back to love in a moment towards the end to indicate the whole thing is about love. So, verse 3, remember those who are in prison, this is the third way, as though in prison with them, which is the rationale, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Now, this, again, is... One of these ones that's often misunderstood and misinterpreted. This passage here, this verse here, is not talking about those who are in jail because they have committed a criminal offense. Clearly, Christians should love those who are in jail even if they have committed a criminal offense because we are to love the outsider, the stranger of any kind. Yes, for sure, but this verse is not about that. This verse in the context of the book and in the context of this verse is about those Christians who are in jail for their Christian confession because they are Christians. So that's why he says in the verse, remember those who are in prison and those who are mistreated. He's talking about what we would call the persecuted church. And to love them, he says, the way to do this is to remember. What he means is, have the persecuted church at the forefront of your mind. For whatever is at the forefront of your mind will be the priority of your action. I wonder what's the forefront of your mind? Buying that last present for that person you can't think out what what to give for them? Lunch? Lunch? He's saying, have at the forefront of your mind the persecuted uh, church. Now, that would have been perhaps easier for them to do in some ways because they were facing persecution and they would have known personally those who've been thrown in jail or mistreated for their Christian confession. And as far as I know, there's no one, I don't think there's anyone in Wheaton who's been thrown in jail for being a Christian. But we live in a global village. And we have a lot of familiarity with Christians who are being persecuted in the Middle East and Africa and China. And we are to have them at the forefront of our mind. Why? He tells us. He says the same thing in two different ways. He says, as though in prison with them, and then same thing, different way of expressing it, Since you also are in the body, what he's saying is, we're all part of the body of Christ. And so, the way we should remember, the way we should think about the persecuted church is not about them. We should think about us. It's not they who are being persecuted, it's we who are being persecuted. Think of it like this, just a little illustration. It's not quite the same, but it helps a little bit. If, if you're watching a sports game, you're watching your favorite sports team. There was a big game last night I hear. If you're watching it and they win, what you say is, we won. We won. Or if, they, if the team loses, you say, we lost. We. You're identifying yourself with the team. How much more then, for those of us who are Christians, who are spiritually and actually a part of the same body, should we think of the persecuted church as us? You put one Christian in jail, you put us all in jail. We're one body. And so that should motivate like our prayer for the persecuted church on Friday mornings and various other ways we and other churches and ministries seek to love those who are persecuted. That's the third way to love. The fourth is in verse 4. He says this, let marriage, and again he doesn't use the word love but obviously marriage is a love relationship, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. So here again is the reasons For each of these things, there's a how and there's a why. So here's the why. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So what he's saying here is, and he, he's obviously elevating marriage, and he's doing it two ways. First of all, that the marriage should be honored among all, and the marriage bed should be undefiled. So those are two ways. So first of all, to elevate marriage, Marriage should be honored by all. What that means is not just that we as a church should put on marriage conferences and seminars. Those are good things to do, and we've done it in the past, and I'm sure we should do it again. That's a programmatic expression of honoring marriage. We should do that, but he's not just talking about that. And he's not just talking about having um, the Becoming One class for those who uh, are getting married so that we can honor marriage among us, he, that's a programmatic expression of this, but it's not just merely what he's talking about. What he's talking about is that in the community, the way we talk about marriage should honor it. We should say to our married friends, uh, you've been married 30 years? That's just brilliant. Brilliant. Or the person who's um, just got married and has been married for six months or a year or something like, oh, well done for, that's so good that you, you've got you've got so much more to come. It's just such a great it's such a great thing to be married. That it's a community project. Honouring marriage. Now, obviously, we should honour those who are single. Jesus was single. Paul was single. But this text is not about singleness. It's about marriage. And so that's why I'm talking about honouring marriage. It's a community project to honour marriage. And the reverse can happen. I remember one person who ended up getting divorced who, in a pastoral context with me, shared that a, a, a trigger for this individual was... Something that some of his friends said about his marriage that sort of teased him and joked about how hard it was. And he, it just like, it, marriage is hard work sometimes. It takes sacrifice. You don't always get what you want. And when I say that, I can't help but think of the next line in the rock song, but sometimes you get what you need. But it's hard work, sacrifice, and we should be honoring those who do that. But the second thing he, he says here is not only honor marriage, by, uh, marriage should be held in honor among all, but also let the marriage bed be undefiled. Why? For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Let's listen. The Bible: The biblical teaching about marriage is that anything outside of biblically defined marriage is wrong. Any sexual intimacy outside of biblically defined marriage, God will judge. That's what it says. Don't get angry with me. It's what the text says. And that's why, of course, we need the blood of Jesus that we talked about last week to be so prominent in our preaching, in our ministry, in our church, in our lives that we, we need to be forgiven. We need, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. We need the Jesus who came for the outsider and the sinner. But, but it's hard teaching this, that anything outside of any sexual intimacy, outside of biblically defined marriage is wrong. That's hard teaching, but it won't make it any easier to blur the clear teaching of Scripture because God is real and he will judge. Which is why we need the eternal blood of Jesus which is why we need to come to Christ and be forgiven and restored. So what he's saying here is, he says let the marriage bed be undefiled. The bed is obviously talking about sexual intimacy. What he's saying is that the solution to the sexual destructiveness of their age and of our age, of any age, the solution to the sexual destructiveness of our age is elevating within marriage sexual, I was going to say purity, but that, that word purity has become so confused in Christian subculture it's hard to use it, sexual, sexual intimacy that is undefiled to use the precise words here. Which means that... Let me just give you some... uh, the pastoral words of advice I tend to give to those I do premarital counseling with. So... um, It can help to schedule... I know that sounds a strange thing but it helps one partner wait and the other partner get ready another it's just past oral that can help is patience the lie is that sexual thrill increases with increasing sexual variety of partners. Not true. Sexual thrill is directly related to sexual intimacy, which takes time. Which is why if you, if you can get a, a, an older couple who have a good marriage, who've been married a long time, they'll tell you that their sex life, and you perhaps don't want to know this if you talk to your 65-year-old friend, but if you can get them to be honest... They'll tell you their sex life gets better and better as they get older. Because they just know each other better. Which means, take the time. Be patient. The other thing I tend to say to couples when they're getting married is, listen, relax. If you're cooking a meal, sometimes it's going to get burnt. Oh, well. It's not always going to be great. Relax. You've got all the time in the world or all the time in your life. Well, then he comes to the fifth way to, well, now the way not, the love not to have, which is in verse 5. He says this. Keep your life uh, free uh, from the love of money which again is another so we've had philadelphia we have philozenia now we have philaguros love of money that's what we're not to have Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have for, here's the rationale again. He has said, and he's going to quote from the Scriptures because the Hebrew Christians would have known these passages well. It's from the book of Joshua. For he, that is of course God, has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And then again he quotes from now the book of Psalms. So, verse 6, we can confidently say, the Lord is my help, I will not fear, what can man do? do to me. What he's saying here is, okay, so this love to have, this love to have, but here's a love not to have, and that is the love of money. We often get this wrong, I think, in church circles. We tend to think that what motivates greed is a fundamental desire for accumulation of more and more stuff, and I'm sure there's something... There's some, some truth to that. We should be content, as it says here, with what we have. So there, there's an element of truth to that. But, but the reality is one person can only enjoy so much stuff. And people who just accumulate more and more and more and more and more, there's, 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 more, there's something going on there. I was amazed, and one illustration of this is Steve Jobs. I can never remember whether his name is Steve Jobs or Steve Jobs. I never met the guy, but you know who I mean the Apple guy, right? He had various houses all over the place. He had a boat that he was building. You know, he had a New York, like, really fancy kind of mansion on billionaire row that he never went to? Like, what's the point of that? Why, why do people just, what, what the text is saying here is actually what motivates greed, the love of money, you know what motivates that? Fear. Which is why he says to counteract that, the promise from Scripture, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And then from Psalms, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. Fear. What can man do to me? People collect more and more and more stuff because they want to feel safe and secure. But money can go just like that. And the only security is in relationship to the Lord. Greed is generated by fear, avarice by anxiety. And the solution is the reality of who God is, which is why the generous person, we as a church covenant together, everyone who's a member of Cottage Church, covenants together to be generous in their giving to the work of the gospel here at the church as we serve the community and the world. The reason why we do that is not because God needs the money. He doesn't need the money. God will provide. The reason why we do that is because the generous person is free from fear. The Lord is my helper. I do not fear. He will never leave me nor forsake me. What can man do to me? And you live a life of generosity. So here we have love, how and why to love, and of course it is very much a Christmas message, isn't it? In the book of Matthew, uh, Jesus at the beginning is called Emmanuel, which means God with us, and and the end of Matthew's gospel, he promises then and commands then, uh, surely I'll be with you always to the end of the age, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. In other words, because of the love of Christmas, therefore we should love others by making disciples of all nations, which is the love and the why and the how. Well, as we close, let me close an illustration I think you'll find helpful in this regard and just kind of tie a bow around the whole thing we've been thinking about. April the 14th, 1912, 1,528 people in the frigidly cold waters And of those 1,528 people, only six were rescued by lifeboats. In those waters, the people who had come out of the Titanic when it had sunk beneath the waves, in those waters, one of the survivors, one of the people who lived to tell the tale, described what had happened afterwards in a survivor's meeting. This is his story. He clambered up onto a piece of debris to get out of the water. He had no life vest. And as he was sitting there, a man who did have a life vest splashed over to him and began to witness to him and urge him to put his faith in Jesus. To which this man sitting on the debris who survived refused. He had other things on his mind other than religion. And the man in the water with the life vest, whose name was John Harper, who was a preacher, who was making his way on the Titanic to take up the pulpit of Moody Church, the famous Chicago church pulpit downtown. John Harper looked at him and said, well then, if you're refusing my offer of salvation, then you need this more than I do, and took off his life vest and threw it to the man on the debris, and John Harper splashed over to other people in the waters and witnessed to them. A little bit later, he splashed back again to the guy sitting on the debris, that one of the few survivors, and witnessed him one more time. And this time, the man sitting on that piece of flotsam and jetsam, that, that bit of wood or whatever it was, sitting there, received Jesus. Sometime later, John Harper Before he finally sank beneath the waves and died, his final words were, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And he died. That's love. That's the way God has loved us. And that is how and why we are to love each other. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, we do thank you for uh, the love of Christmas. And it is sometimes, Father, hard to love each other. We pray, Lord, that this teaching here would help us both to receive your love and to give that love to others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.